Shall we? Come. Join us for a little lunch. He keeps his mouth shut or he doesn't get a penny. We'll talk about that later. Eyeballs, Mr. Gatsby. Eyeballs it is. All right. Take care of my friends. Get gated decadence. Ill reverence. Ill reverence. See these fists? He's the next heavyweight champion. Pay my respects to you, Bob. AJ, you're under arrest. You be careful now. You're turning into a real jazz house, Commissioner. That's the commissioner back there. You'll be careful at those tables now, Senator. I'll put a bet on for you, Jane. Carter, New Kennedy, no ordinary Joe, you remember me. We'll have the lobster. It's decorated with truffles and fine herbs. No prohibition from a coalition. I need a hundred bricks on them hundred rocks. I got a hundred drops, stuck a hundred cops, a hundred dollar bill. Real. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Modern History HSC podcast. My name is Blake Hamilton. And today we're going to be covering a topic that's not in my particular wheelhouse, which is the USA National Study. And this is from 1919 to 41. Uh, It's got a similar end date to the Soviet Union, which is the one that I cover. Um, I think that this discussion is going to be really helpful for setting a context for our next student debate, which is going to be looking at the most important president of the Cold War, We're going to be looking at two presidents, Hoover and FDR, and the context of the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression and all this civil unrest that's going on in the United States. But I'm not the expert. I've brought in my mate Peter Grace from Denison College, Kelso High Campus in Bathurst. That's a mouthful, but that is the man who is going to help us out today. So hello, Peter. Hey, how are you? I'm doing very well, mate. Thank you for coming on this call. Um, I just want to clear the air for you to give a bit of a rundown to the audience, um, you know, who you are, a little bit more context about the school, what subjects you teach, how long you've been doing it for, anything you think is interesting, and then we can get into some other questions. All righty. So, um, yeah, at uh, Denison College, Kelso High Campus, um, I'm uh, currently doing year um Year 12 Modern History, um, also cover the Ancient History course as well. Um, And I've spent a very long time doing the USA National Study as my main national study for uh, students that I teach. Um, It never used to be that much of a popular um, uh, topic to do, but since they changed the syllabus, um, it's now really and truly well and truly gone on the rise. So as Lots of schools out there that do it now, um, and that might be because they took Germany away as one of the national studies that you yep. could do, and <laughs> basically made the core out of that instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, but otherwise, I've I've been uh, teaching for about fourteen years now um, in various different capacities and in lots of different schools. I've been in, you know, the the city, the country, um, and the coast. I've, I've covered all of those those areas and worked in schools that range from student, you know, nearly 1,300 students right down to schools that have got 130 students. So yeah, all different some, scopes and backgrounds. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All righty. I suppose we'll make our, make our way through it. Yeah. So my first question is, so when I am con- constructing my year 12, I guess, syllabus and the topics I want to pick, you obviously got to pick the power and authority Um, You don't get out of that one, but that's a great one. Um, Then I'm thinking, what are three topics that overlap? So I pick the Soviet study, the Cold War, and then I look at the rise of, uh, I look at China and Tiananmen Square. So, and I think they've got these overlapping themes of like communism, the Cold War, things repeat, cult of personality, 
So what's your reasoning for picking the USA study, Peter? All right. Um, basically, mine is uh, to uh, dovetail the whole heap of units together. Um, I do a very similar thing to you, except my focus is very much on um, American history, which is yeah, my, my sort of passion, my, my background. Um, and with the Year 12 course, I usually always, well, always, um, put together the USA National Study with conflict in the Pacific, um, and I then carry on into doing the nuclear age. Now, the reason why I do that is because the end of the USA National Study is basically the beginning of conflict in the Pacific for America. Yeah. Um, so I can cover some, uh, some of the content and things like that that gets covered. I don't have to repeat myself too much. Um, and then obviously with the end of the conflict in the Pacific with bombings on you know, um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, um, that picks me up to be able to have some um, you know, dovetailing into the nuclear age and looking at why you know, the development of these nuclear weapons um, and why it became such a big thing. And then all the knock-on effects from that of where people were, particularly in America, again, it's a very American focus for me, um, looking at all of the uh, sort of benefits, I suppose you could say, out of what nuclear technology was going to be um, for, for society all around the world, not just in America. Yeah, no, that sounds like a, like a really interesting timeline, especially, I guess, you complement the fact that you can kind of stick to a, like a single, like, national focus. So you got America, then you got America again. I guess, that yeah, there are other people coming in, but they don't have, like, kids don't have to relearn, like, a new culture, like, every single time, or that you don't have to assume that it's like, oh, this culture's like that, so this isn't uncommon, and and you don't have to maybe redo the survey study over and over because you covered that then in the previous topic. So I think that's a smart way of setting it up. Yeah. Um, I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree with that as well. Um, so let's delve into the US national study. So 1919, end of the First World War, what is the state of the USA? Is that where you normally start your discussions with your kids? Um, yeah, pretty well, because, um, and, and again, it's a nice little dovetail for me, because the last unit that I do for um, year 11, the year 11 course is World War One, And obviously, with the conversations around um, uh, the, um, the League of Nations and everything, uh, makes things nice and easy to lead into that state that you find America in. So America in the 1919 um, 19, 19 is basically... Uh, kind of a, a little bit confused, I would have to say. Um, yep. It really wants to go back to this concept of, you know, how they used to be, you know, like in the Wild West and, you know, that that kind of stuff. They, they keep trying to hark back to a, a past that, a past that's gone um, and a past that they can't really repeat. Um, and they want to shut themselves off from the rest of the world. So their isolationist policies that come through. Um, and, and as a big part of that, they, they really want to, uh, I'm just trying to think of how to say it. They, they really kind of want to build themselves up and get themselves on their own feet and, and follow all of these kind of moral um, ways of living, which will, you know, later on in our conversation, you know, lead into things like, um, you know, religious fundamentalism and all that kind of thing. I was going to say, um, is that really pushed by like the strong sense of like Christianity and, and, and religion that's happening within the country? That's yeah. like, we're going to look after ourselves first. We don't need the rest of the world. We don't want to get involved in Europe. That yeah. kind of fuels the League of Nations, like Woodrow Wilson sets it up with his 14 points and goes back to Congress and Congress is like, no. Yeah, pretty well. Pretty <laughs> and well. then the whole thing falls on its ass. <laughs> and it's kind of like the 1920s version of uh, Make America Great Again. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, that repeats so many times, yeah, so many yeah. times. Everyone thought Trump came up with it, but yeah. he just looked at a history book. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, look, it's America just really wanted to get out of um, being a part of all of those world affairs. And all, you also have your change in... Um, uh, your change away from Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson. 
because um, him being a Democrat and 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 trying to be um, progressive um, and make America, I suppose, on that international stage. And a lot of people didn't really want that. Um, and then you end up with a complete mind shift when you end up with Warren G. Harding being brought in as the next president of the United States. Interestingly, um, one of the ways that he was able to get so many votes is because women were allowed to vote all of a sudden. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So mm. he, he, had a, he had a huge pull for the female vote in the country. He did, yeah. He was basically looked at as um, a lot of American women at the time looked at him like he was kind of like a father figure or a grandfather figure. Yeah, um, yeah you've only got to look at pictures of him and, and think, oh, wow, you know, I mean, you can kind of understand why they, why they looked at him in that way. Um, and so a lot of a lot of women wanted that. But also for if you're thinking about women, um, you've also got a lot of them had sons or husbands or, or things that had died during the First World War. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Woodrow Wilson had got them involved in that. And so it was kind of like a bit of bit of a blame game kind of going on. And and Warren G. Harding was was going to sort of really shift how America was um, going to operate. Yeah. And is he a Republican or a Democrat? Just for people yeah. who aren't familiar. Yep. So he's a Republican. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, a lot more sort of conservative mindset. Um, and that's when you start seeing all of your changes within US society really starting to, to take hold. So, you know, more promotion of business, um, you know, more wanting to keep America on its own to do its own things, um, you know, try and let people uh, remember this time and, and live by this time yeah. that they, they kind of couldn't really have. But unfortunately for him, his cabinet was incredibly corrupt. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you end up with him, um, you know, you, re you really uh, um, end up with him not being all that effective he doesn't um see out his whole term he actually dies um of a, a heart attack and things but basically one of the quotes that you could take from him is um you know americans were quote tired of issues sick at heart of ideals and weary of being noble so mm. yeah yeah, Sounds very familiar to yeah. other platforms. Yeah. <laughs> so he wanted this whole concept of normalcy, which is like a, a comforting thought, but it's really just a, an illusion, um, yeah. if anything more. So he really started his um, economic stuff really successfully. Um, but the problem for him was uh, prohibition, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yep. So prohibition's brought in. Um, and basically his uh, cabinet, um, in a lot of cases, actually act very corruptly in giving out special, you know, illegal liquor permits and, um, you know, yeah. underhanded loans and, and um, you know, trying to line their own pockets through oil deals and, and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with even the term prohibition what's it's a ban so what what's banned what can't you do or participate in or in uh, in u.s society at this period of time um it's the uh, manufacture sale and consumption of alcohol is out, is outlawed yes so um it's look it, it's a really it's a huge part of America's um, sort of identity at that time. Um, again, it's one of the things that branches out of out of kind of a, a bit of a religious fundamentalism in a way. Um, but basically, America was seen by the outside world as well as looking at itself as being a nation of alcoholics. Um, the, the levels of consumption were insanely huge um right <laughs> yeah like you you drank for everything um you know i mean nowadays when people are going to parties and and um you know special events and things you you might have a drink or whatnot but they were literally drinking all day every day they drink because it was tuesday they drink because it was wednesday they drink <laughs> because it was 
Thursday, um, the concepts on things like uh, cider, for instance, um, you know, kind of harks a little bit back to their past where, you know, people were aware of waterborne diseases and things and drinking alcohol tends to not have any of those diseases in it. Yep. Um, so look, you, you just inside your front door, you'd probably have a big barrel of cider sitting there with like a ladle um, and everyone was able to drink from it. So, you know, you'd come home from work and you'd, you know, have, have some cider or you'd have some cider with breakfast and, you know, the kids would be having some cider as well. And it was, it was a real big issue basically, because it was breaking down family networks. Um, it was, uh, women particularly were not happy with the massive consumptions because it was leading to lots of problems where people, you know, their husbands or whatnot were spending all their money on alcohol instead of feeding families. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, a real, a really big, big issue. Um, lots of domestic violence going on and something had to be done and people started to form groups. One of those groups is still around today. Um, I'll be there in a second, everyone. Okay. One of those, uh, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and Alcoholics Anonymous was basically you know, a voluntary group and it obviously grew in its popularity of men pledging themselves not to be drinking alcohol. Yeah. Um, and it was seen as one of those things. There were temperance movements everywhere where people were taking up drinking tea more than alcohol and or water or milk or whatever. Um, and, you know, a lot of older, particularly, you know, uh, sort of some old ladies and things like that really found that it was affecting their families and whatnot and wanted to get rid of it but what needs to be thought about is the fact that it's centered a lot in the country more than in the cities that's that was my question that i was actually thinking about is this a coastal phenomenon or is it happening in your like rust belt like center of the united states so yeah, it's basically it, it becomes pretty widespread, um, and because there are there is a lot of uh, groups that are forming really really rapidly right across the United States. But the problem is that number one, the push for prohibition was to outlaw something that was um, moralistic. Yeah. You can drink it if you want to. You don't have to drink it if you don't want to. Um, but outlawing a moral is really hard to do. Yeah. So anyway, they gave it a good they gave it a good shot. Um, Had a lot of pushback, I imagine. That's it, I, I it see the pictures did. of like people like um, running illegal trades and like the Great Gatsby kind of comes to mind. I yeah. don't know if that yeah. is that movie. <laughs> if you watch it or if you read that book, is that a good like insight or a good like source? That's probably not a hundred percent factual but to like look at to gauge what is happening just before the great depression it is it is because it's looking at um very much all that speakeasy kind of partying type lifestyle but but the reason why that all occurs sorry if you can hear my my son crying in the background that's all good we're all learning from home (laughs) (laughs) um his mum's out there. I'm not just leaving him there to cry. I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, make that that's right. Dogs aren't coming, Peter. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just before I get to that point, you obviously have um, America bringing in prohibition and it's very much the cities versus the country. And eventually the cities come on board with it. But when prohibition comes into effect, that's when you start seeing all of this real pushback to it happening. Um, and you start seeing the gangsters arriving, you start seeing, um, you know, the police going around and, and breaking up speakeasies and things which are, you know, underground illegal bars, basically. Yeah. Um, and they feature quite prominently in things like um, The Great Gatsby and a lot of stuff written by um, Fitzgerald. Um, and they're very much, um, you know... <laughs> For a while, there's very much a blind eye given to the whole thing. Um, bootlegging comes out of um, out of this world where literally a person would have a hip flask or something tied to their leg underneath their trousers, um, and they would sell you a swig of alcohol, some illegal yep. alcohol they'd gotten hold of, um, like 50 cents a swig or whatever, um, and literally, you know, you'd... you'd walk around the corner with them, make sure the cops aren't looking and he'd give you a swig from his hip flask and put it back on his leg, you know? Um, yeah, wow, cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 
if you want to look at the, um, uh, you know, Hoover will get to soon, but but Hoover, even though he had to support it, he didn't really support it because he had alcohol being delivered directly to the White House. Um, that was, you know, pretty well known. Um, you also have, you know, lots of companies were trying to get in on the whole thing. So um, Abercrombie and Fitch, I don't know if you know that no. brand. Oh, oh um, yeah, I do know the brand. Yeah. So Abercrombie and Fitch, when they first start, they're actually a camping company. Um, yep. And I've actually seen one of the suitcases that they made with a huge steel um, hip flask inside the suitcase. So it must have weighed a ton when it was filled. Yeah. Um, but there was, yeah, I mean, people started making their own alcohol all over the place um, and, and trying to sell it and, and neighbourhoods would get together and have a still and, you know, someone to keep an eye out for the cops and, and then they'd all of a sudden, you know, scurry off and dismantle it or hide what they had or, or whatever before the police got there. Um, you have all the gangsters like Al Capone and everything appearing at this time and really taking, um, taking advantage of all of the the uh, sort of money that could be made out of selling alcohol. Um, you also have him uh, and people like him. I think George Remus is another one. Um, they buy all of the old distilleries. So basically when, when Prohibition comes in, places like Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, they just had the doors shut yep. and no one was there. But the place is still filled with barrels of alcohol. So they were oh, able okay. They were able to buy the distilleries for a dirt cheap price, and then they literally just rolled out hundreds, if not thousands, of barrels of alcohol to sell. So, um, it's like buying old pubs to get the pokey license. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, look, there's lots going on on with that, um, and just as a, a yeah, Al Capone eventually becomes a very much when the depression happens, a champion of the people. Because number one, he's giving them alcohol, but number two, it was also when the Great Depression hits hard, he actually gives out free food and, and um, opens free uh, cafeterias so that the poor could actually have something to eat. Um, he very much thought of himself as a celebrity, um, as well as being a gangster. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, he had so a lot of uh, clout. In a, in a small way, I suppose you could say politically, but very much socially, um, even amongst all of the other warring uh, gangsters in areas like Chicago. Um, uh, there's, there's this great story. There's uh, a, a political event happening in Chicago where, you know, people are coming in from international areas and things, and, and literally the organisers of that go up to Al Capone and to his place and, and ask if... Um, if there can be no violence in the in the in the town in Chicago for the those two days, um, he agreed to it, and sure enough, not a single gang war or gang fight or anything happened for two days. Yeah. <laughs> He's just got the power. Yeah, yeah. But also another one for him too, um, and a, and reason why people liked him a lot because um, he stood up for uh, some things to do with women and children. Um, uh, one of his legacies is actually can be found inside your fridge today, and that's the use by date on milk bottles. Yeah, um, wow, was, cool. Yeah, Again. what was happening <laughs> was that um, that was not a required thing um, uh, at all, and unbeknownst to a lot of ladies, they were they were buying um, off milk and feeding that to their infants, and their infants were dying. So, as a safety measure to stop that from happening, um, Al Capone wanted the introduction of use by dates on milk bottles and it, it's still with us today yeah and so he like pushed that through like and probably used his money and his influence for, for that to become like a political like it became policy. a local thing it became yeah. a local local thing first and then others sort of thought it was a good idea and, and picked it up and and, yeah. and all that kind of thing but look prohibition um yeah there was so much money sunk into it because you had um, you know, police going off out into the country, you know, out into the bush and stuff and find people's um, homemade stills and things out there and have to smash them up. And obviously that created violence, um, you know, so police were getting injured, um, you know, as well as uh, people being charged on this moral aspect of why they could or could not have it. Some religious groups weren't happy about it. So um, 
you couldn't have um so under sort of jewish religions um or religion you you couldn't have um sort of sacramental wines of anything um so kosher wines yeah. um the catholic church weren't happy with it because you couldn't have wine um for you know communion or anything like that so um eventually what you end up finding to help pull prohibition apart is that it's the women who start doing it they were the one who got it in place to begin with but yeah a lot of women actually found that it was creating more problems than it was solving so all of the gang um, warfare that was going on with the gangsters and, and things um, was a new phenomena that hadn't occurred before um, to that extent anyway um, and it was creating lots and lots of societal issues so in, in a big way it was actually women who were actually trying to fight um, to have prohibition repealed um, and, and get rid of it because it was just not cost effective you know you break up one still and there'd be another one that you didn't find and 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 all that kind of thing sounds um, like the war on drugs like yeah to me yeah yeah but the bit the big difference and between a, a war on drugs is that um when hoover uh, sorry roosevelt comes into power he repeals prohibition um and gives people back alcohol um makes it elite makes it legal again but adds a tax to it instead because obviously the America's pretty strapped for cash when it comes to the Great Depression. And that was one of their ways of being able to generate uh, finance was to tax uh, the sale of alcohol. Let people have it um, and, and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and you never saw the drinking consumption levels rise as high as they used to be until I think like the 90s. Yeah, okay. Um, in America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so there you uh, go. Sorry, that was a lot of no, me talking, wasn't it? And I was a bit no, all over it, the place there. But this is what just... the podcasts are about. Like, people don't want to hear me talk about a subject that I do not know. I don't know any of those stories. And <laughs> I'm just sitting here just lapping it up. But I am going to move us on to yep. the Great Depression because, like, apart from history, I love like macroeconomics and looking at depressions and how that influences like generations and trends and all those sorts of things. So I'm keen, well, I'm keen to hear a simple explanation that you'd be giving to your class as what causes the Great Depression, what's the extent of its damage, and then like what are its flow and effects, and then keep going with that. Yep. Um, it is a very, and, and teachers of sort of economics and things like that too. Um, it, it's kind of a, a bit of a hard concept to get across to kids to begin with, because you need to be able to get them to have an understanding of um, how shares work mm. in the stock market. Um, and yeah, usually sort of started off with saying, you know, how you see you know, on, on the news every single day, there'll be this thing about, you know, um, these different companies and whether or not their shares have gone up or their shares have gone down like BHP yeah. or Woolies or something like that. Um, and usually most of them can, can tell me that, yes, that's, they've seen that, but they actually don't really have any understanding on how it works. Um, and with our content and things that we have to cover with, um, with this unit, trying to explain how the stock market works and for this to even occur is like, I mean, it's a good 50 minute lesson. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, what people were doing. Um, but the, the basic crux of it is that they were, <laughs> the big thing of trying to make money um, without having to do much, kind of like a get rich quick kind of scheme. They all thought that the stock market was the way to go. Yep. Um, the problem is that, the way their money was being used. So you walked into a bank um, and you deposit money and things, but then the bank starts using your money to play around on the stock market. And um, in some cases, and I mean, you could do it personally as well, um, but people were spending more money on stock than what it was actually worth. Right. And I think so that's called rehypothecation. Like, again, the, the money supply is increasing beyond what is actually there. And this is when money is back to gold. Isn't this correct? Like, yeah, so that yeah. It's, it's all tied to gold and stuff. Um, yeah. And you, 
Yeah, so basically the way I try and explain to the kids is sort of like, let's say you, you know, you've bought a pen, you know, you're going to have shares in a pen yep. and the pen itself has been, you know, it's actually only worth 20 cents, but you've paid $8 to have a share in that pen. Um, so when the stock market crashed, basically all that money that you had thought that you were, were investing wisely disappears. Yeah. Because it's not actually worth anything. Look, it, the spiral effect of it's really quite um, full on, but basically what happens on the day is, or over a few days, is um, people start to, to sell off. And it's a problem of old technology. Um, they were selling off things really, really quickly. Okay. So they were, they were you know, people were, were really optimistic about, um, you know, what they, were, what they were investing in. Um, there was lots of money flying around all over the place. There were signs that it was actually getting a bit shaky, um, but it's not until you actually have and get to October um, of 29 that that starts to occur. So basically, I'll just go through this nice and quickly. Um, yep. Sorry, it's going to be a bit of me talking still, but... No, go for it. So they, they relied on a thing called a ticker, and a ticker was the, the thing that was telling them... Um, information about their you know stocks which one was going up and down and all that kind of thing um what was happening were people were starting to the the people were sort of selling off their stocks and the ticker that was printing out information to be fed to the buyers and sellers couldn't keep up with the volume of those of those sales um and the sellers knew that there was going to be uh you know the sharp down um, fall in prices was happening. They didn't really quite know how much that was going to be. Um, and so there was a little bit of a drop on that on the 21st of October. Over the next two days, which are the 22nd and 23rd, um, the everything seemed to sort of settle itself down. Um, so people were kind of happy with that. Um, but then after that, people got a little bit scared. Um, so on the 24th, the investors lost all their confidence in the market and they started to sell everything they had as quick as they could. Um, the, bank, the bankers and investors tried to get them to stop. Um, and then you have a day of no trading, but the whole market fell by about 13%. Um, and then Black Tuesday, which is October the 29th, you end up with 16.4 million shares being sold on that day. Um, but there was no one there to buy them. Yeah. So the marginal price. So this is the price at the very fringe is that people like, actually, everything I bought is completely worthless, like make believe trash yeah. that nobody wants. I'll sell it at any price. Yep. And then you've got there was no, thousands there was no and thousands them. of people trying to do that. <laughs> it's yeah, like, I yeah. want something. Who's going to be the bag holder of my yeah. worthless stuff? That's right. That's yeah. right. And, yep. um, and eventually, yeah, there's just no buyers there for it. So the value of the shares on the stock market fall by more than 50%. Um, yeah, and it's really, 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 really full on um, with all of that. But basically, billions of dollars are, are wiped off that stock market. Um, and lots of people lost everything. Some people... Uh, the one thing that you need to with, with class is... If you were an investor on Wall Street, you knew what was happening and what was about to happen. The everyday person didn't actually feel the effects of this for, I think, about a couple of months. Yeah. So um, you do actually get images where people that were working in New York or you know, all that kind of thing had actually thrown themselves out of buildings or committed suicide, um, you know, over those couple of days because they knew yeah. what was on the way and they knew that they'd used other people's money to play around and it didn't pay off um <coughs> and there was no way for them to re um, get that back so basically the yeah the, so the, the stock market's overinflated basically um and yeah so that was that was a, re a really bad aspect of and there's lots and lots of pictures out there where and yeah people can look it up nice and easy um but 
all of the big spending that you see in the in that kind of great Gatsby kind of, you know, awesome, you know, big parties and flamboyance and, you know, cars and, and, and planes and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and just this real heady, like awesomeness about how great they were. Um, Bill Bryson's um, American 1927, great book to read. It will give you a fantastic insight into that world um, set just in 1927 alone and it just how amazing it must have and how fun it must have been to live in America, um, particularly in one of the cities at that time. Yep. So because the world's economy was attached to the US, um, basically you end up with, you know, a complete collapse because um, you know no one's investing and in, in all that kind of thing in american goods and and, and whatnot so yeah, yeah and this like is linked to like loans and credit so like it, before when like these people who are buying houses and planes <laughs> and cars and all this other stuff that you're like you're talking about and you're saying the average person who might not even own stocks or own assets other than a house they're going to find that credit conditions so their ability to even buy a house or do any of this basic stuff not the fun stuff just like yep. nobody's nobody's lending anymore and yeah. same goes for the the wartime loans after world war one to the rest of the world so and this this is for everybody studying modern history for like why you're wondering why europe gets thrown into chaos is that their loans that they're kind of surviving off to rebuild because america blows up it does affect them because now their loans are coming due and they don't have the money either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody's got the money. And, that, and that's where <laughs> one of my, my favourite ones from Australia comes into it, actually, because we're in the process of building the um, the Harbour Bridge in Sydney and, yeah. and um, England wants all of the money back from us that we've been using to um, build that bridge. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, basically our... our um, Premier of New South Wales, Jack Lang, um, he robs, I think he robs the, the the Reserve Bank in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, and he and, wants to make it like a commodity-based currency yeah, or something, he, like he, base he it runs, on wool. He runs, <laughs> he runs the, the state of New South Wales on cash just so the British can't get their money out of us. No, anyway, yeah. whatever, that's a side note. Um, that's a mad story for anybody else who wants to go look it up. Jack yeah, Lang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So look, um, with that, and where you really start seeing the effect on the everyday person is that people were going into banks to try and withdraw their money, um, and the banks had no money to give them. So um, people were getting, you know, obviously that um, that word spreads really, really, really quickly, and people mm. start trying to, you know, get whatever they can out of banks and, and all that kind of thing. Um, the the other issue is that during that heady time of the 20s, America was overproducing um, for the demand. So when you actually see the, the knock-on effect, so the downward spiral of deflation ends up happening, which leads us to our depression. So um, all of the paper profits that people had been made, so all these stock kind of stuff that had all fallen apart, um, there was no way to really sort of, you know, the, all, all of that money was, was gone. So there's less demand on on products and less demand causes people to lower their prices yeah um the lower prices then cause less production and yep. less production then causes less employment and less employment then causes less money to be in circulation so that less money then ca causes less bank credits that bank credit then less bank credit um, means that there's not as much building of factories and homes um, and because there's less building going on again there's less employment and less employment leads to less demand and it just keeps going and that's where you get your depression <laughs> so it's a deflationary like if you thought about it if you ever heard the term when it comes to money or the stock market it's like oh it's a big bubble this is what we're talking about when a bubble like pops you are seeing a massive deflationary event and it's robbing jobs it's just everything's just kind of grinding because the demand that was kind of artificially there is now gone yeah yeah and you see it happen in history many 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 times um you know it's not like this event happened and uh, lots of lessons were learned from this event but um got the dot-com yeah. bubble you got 2008 yeah you got the covid yeah. like the covid crash yeah, that's as well. right yeah so um, anyway, look, there, there's different 
methods um, and Herbert Hoover, unfortunately, I mean, realistically, he's, he's not, Americans don't like him um, as one of their presidents. His first ever um, appointment to an office was the president of the United States of America. Um, prior to that, he was basically a, 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 a businessman. Um, he's a Republican. Um, he takes over um, a little bit before the depression actually happened, before the, the crash happens. Um, so he kind of inherit. Well, it doesn't even inherit it. He sort of he's there, and then the crash happens, and everyone Gets looks smashed. to their leader for <laughs> support and what to do. And he doesn't really have any ideas or anything like that on what to do. But because he's a businessman, he turns around and blames the whole thing on business. He didn't really believe that um, that the government needed to step in to save the businesses um, because the businesses had created this problem for themselves. Um, so they should be able to get it out of it themselves. But as, as we see with history, that's not, um, you know, that, that approach doesn't really work. Um, he's, you know, he's got his medicine ball cabinet um and the medicine ball is basically you know, i mean do you know what a, me a medicine ball like a, yeah yeah, a ball? yeah 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 um, shake the ball and it you get you get a prediction or something like that oh no 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 medicine balls for for exercise oh yeah yeah sorry like what a, am i thinking like, yeah like, yeah, like, yeah, like volleyball. Yeah, yeah yeah so his his cabinet got termed as the medicine ball cabinet because uh, when they were meant to be discussing things of importance hoover would be outside with them playing things like volleyball and stuff like that in the backyard of the White House dead. Um, yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, just not um, not a well-liked individual by the end of it. People started terming things like Hoovervilles because they'd lost everything and they were setting up shanty shanty towns and, and um, all that kind of thing in, you know, public parks and out of towns and, and whatnot because they weren't able to pay rent and they weren't able to get jobs and um, and all that kind of thing. So they, they blamed him a lot for that. And when he finally does do something, it's just way too little too late. So he does start construction for the um, Hoover Dam and of Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. So the, the, all the president's faces in the stone. Yep. He does sort of give the okay to them being done and tries to do a few little sort of civil works projects um, to try and, you know, stimulate jobs and stimulate the economy but it's just way too little too late yeah um, he didn't go big early no no and he didn't even go big at the end either yeah um so anything with fdr coming in was going to be a surefire you know new direction um and fdr promising america of their you know he was going to give them a new deal um and a new direction and all that kind of thing you end up out of the 50 states of america with only three voting for Hoover, um, and everyone else votes for FDR. Um, so it's a landslide. Huge. Yes, but you never see that. Um, there's lots of photos out there of Hoover and Roosevelt um, together in the car at Roosevelt's um, inauguration ceremony, and, and Hoover is not a happy man. Basically, America was without a president for a few months between that handover time because um, yep. Hoover just threw up his hands and were like, yeah, no, stuff it, I'm out, whatever. Um, so there was no direction, there was no nothing, there was nothing going on um, until Roosevelt was actually inaugurated. Wait a minute, is it three or four? One, two, three. Oh, no, sorry. Out of uh, looking at that election, sorry, I'm just looking at it now. Um, yeah, so basically the Democrats, which is FDR, he gets 472 electoral votes across the state and Hoover only gets 59 electoral votes. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Yeah, which are like Vermont, Maine, um, Pennsylvania, um, a, a few other ones. Sorry, there was one, two, three, four, five, six that went his way. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, there you go. So it's a, it's a really, uh, really big thing. Um, people were just really, really upset with how America had gone. Um, and the gangsters really got a lot of, um, you know, credence in this time mainly because they're, they're in some ways offering people employment they're offering them you know free soup and all that kind of stuff um and it takes america a very long time to get out of this out of this depression um it's the farmers that are the worst hit 
So one of the syllabus top points is looking at the Great Depression and the effect on African-Americans, women, farmers, and, um, and, 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 and my memory serves me right, uh, workers. Um, yeah. yeah. So the farmers one's really interesting because they, they have a few more things going on. If you don't mind me talking about that for a little bit, have I gone for too long now? I don't know. Um, anyway. No, no, no farmers, that's all good. Let's keep it rolling. Yeah. So we're talking about the farmers. So they're getting hit with the Great Depression. They've got prohibition going on. And I'm just going to hazard a guess. Is it like a natural disaster that they're also dealing with? Yeah, more of a man-made disaster that they <laughs> okay, create right. for themselves. Yeah. So basically what ends up happening the whole middle section of america is that where the great plains are um that was a, a you know very very fertile grasslands and all that kind of thing um and farmers were working that land and not working it very effectively um what they'd effectively done was basically turn all the land over by plowing it and then got hit with about eight years of drought which then um soaked all the moisture out of the land there was no grass there to hold it down um and all of it from storms coming down cold fronts and things coming down from canada um was lifting all of the all of the topsoil and blowing it away um and so the dust bowl is is a really great um thing to have a look at and the farmers their other issue was that world war one had ended they were making a lot of money during world war one to feed soldiers and whatnot. Um, when the war ended, there was again no demand for, not as much demand for their stuff. They'd taken out lots of loans and things to buy land. Um, New equipment. And to, yeah, 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 to sell their stuff. Um, and then basically the, the Dust Bowl starts up and you also have the depression happening as well um and in order to make money what they were trying to do was buy more land and farm more so let's say a bag of potatoes was two dollars they were selling a bag of potatoes for um and they were only getting you know uh let's say 50 cents now then they'd buy more land plant more potatoes farm more potatoes so they could try and get their two dollars back instead of you know 50 cents yeah. Um, it seems like a weird kind of concept to, to get yourself more in debt to try and get out of it by buying more land and more equipment. But that's what they're up to and um, making more and more problems. And the drought just kept going for them. And lots of them leave. They walk away um, maybe, um, and, and get out of that, that area. Oklahoma is the main epicenter of where all the dust storms happen. The dust storms were so catastrophic, you, you know, to go from day to, to night straight away, um, they move at about 150 kilometres an hour. Um, kids uh, had to, um, you know, if you saw one coming, you, you ran as fast as you could to get back home as, as quickly as you could. Um, kids were dying because they were getting lost on their farms, trying to find their homes uh, in the dust. Um, cattle were when they were opening up the cattle after their cattle were dying, um, they just find their, their stomachs were full of mud um, and, and their lungs were full of mud. Dust pneumonia became a thing for people. And dust pneumonia is, is basically where you're coughing um, droplets of mud out of your, out of your system. Um, and people were dying of that. People were, yeah, if you're in small towns, you, when a dust storm hit and you were caught outside, you dropped to the ground and, followed the gutter home like you you crawled in the gutter to try and find where you were going it was that that catastrophic for them yeah men were men were, were tying ropes between their head their shed and the house so that way if a dust storm happened they would be able to find their house again um by following the rope and cattle a lot of cattle just because of all the you know, dust was building up against the fences. So like um, tumbleweeds and things that land against their fences and dust had built up that. And a lot of livestock just walked away because yeah, there were no fences to hold them fences. in. Yeah. So when FDR comes into power, um, he actually pays the farmers not to farm. Yeah. Just stop. Just yeah. please. <laughs> yeah. So he was paying the farmers not to farm and they started to do better farming practices and, and get themselves back under control. The other thing that FDR does as well is realises that the banks in America with the Great Depression are not um, very stable. So he shuts down banking for a few days. I think it's two days. Um, and 
if the bank was able to survive that, then you could reopen. But if you couldn't survive that shutdown for a couple of days, then your bank collapsed. In the end, uh, there are only 13 or 14 states in America left with a bank. Wow. After he does, after all of that happens. So it's it's really, really incredible. Um, you know, the whole banking industry had to change how they were, were securing stuff and how they were, were doing things. Um, even in, in today's world, you see some knock-on effect from that. So if the bank loses all of your money, if you bank with a bank, then you get that money back in its entirety. If you bank with something like a, a credit union or whatnot, you don't actually have those securities. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's like backed by the uh, is, is does the federal reserve exist in the, at this time in america like i'm just wondering in comparison to other recessions and stuff today is that how they're backing it or do banks have to have larger reserves now as a requirement under fdr um you oh that's a, that's a tough question there are like reserves around but the way they use money because because they even hoover does try to prop up things with um uh, yeah, I mean, businesses came in and tried to prop up the, the stock market from crashing. Um, Hoover eventually starts throwing some money at, at things, but when it's not really until you see FDR where lots of money has been thrown at problems. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, not the world's greatest economist, I have to say. No, that's <laughs> anyway. all good. Um, Pete, what we might do is because yep. we've done an hour and I'm thinking yep. that I'd like to do like a part two, perhaps, like next week or off into the future. So people yep. can see this huge collapse that America's had yep. and you're really setting up FDRs coming in with the new deal and then we can do how they get themselves out of it and then into World War II. Okay. I think, I right think we then. can yeah. tie people over sorry, to that. Sorry, sorry, I've talked too much, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. No, no, not at all. This <laughs> you should is... be in my class. They can't shut me up. I don't have to worry about kids talking. It's just me that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. And I think that's with all teachers. Like we've got so yeah. much to say. Sometimes we just don't get the, the platform to do it. Yeah. So thank you so much, Peter, for coming on. I reckon there are going to be plenty of people who are going to be super like interested for part two when yep. we see how America gets out of this Great Depression, man-made natural disaster, moral conundrum, shutting yep. themselves off from the rest of the world. So thank you so much. Uh, no worries. I'll talk to you next time. Okay. No worries. See ya. <laughs>